The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 13 Important Facts from Galactic History Number 1 Reproduced from the Sidereal Daily Mentioner's Book of Popular Galactic History The night over the planet Cricket is the least interesting sight in the entire universe. It was a charming and delightful day at Lord's as Ford and Arthur tumbled haphazardly out of a space-time anomaly and hit the immaculate turf rather hard. The applause of the crowd was tremendous. It wasn't for them, but instinctively they bowed anyway, which was fortunate because the small red heavy ball which the crowd actually had been applauding whistled mere millimetres over Arthur's head. In the crowd, a man collapsed. They threw themselves back to the ground, which seemed to spin hideously around them. "'What was that?' hissed Arthur. "'Something red!' hissed Ford back at him. "'Where are we?' "'Er, somewhere green.' "'Shapes,' muttered Arthur. "'I need shapes.' The applause of the crowd had been rapidly succeeded by gasps of astonishment, and the awkward titters of hundreds of people who could not yet make up their minds about whether to believe what they'd just seen or not. "'This is your sofa,' said a voice. "'What was that?' whispered Ford. Arthur looked up. "'Something blue,' he said. "'Shape?' said Ford. Arthur looked again. It is shaped, he hissed at Ford, with his brow savagely furrowed, like a policeman. They, they remained crouched there for a few moments, frowning deeply. The blue thing, shaped like a policeman, tapped them both on the shoulders. Come on, you two, said the shape. Let's be having you. These words had an electrifying effect on Arthur. He leapt to his feet like an author hearing the phone ring, <laughs> and a shot a series of startled glances at the panorama around him, which had suddenly settled down into something of quite terrifying ordinariness. Uh, "'Where did you get this from?' he yelled at the policeman shape. "'What did you say?' said the startled shape. "'This this is Lord's cricket ground, cricket ground, isn't it?' snapped Arthur. Well, "'Where did you find it, and how did you get it here? "'I think,' he added, clasping his hand to his brow, "'that I had better calm down.' He squatted down abruptly in front of Ford. "'It is a policeman,' he said. "'See what I mean?' "'Just let it go away.' Do that bit again. Right. It is a policeman, he said. What do we do? Ford shrugged. What do you want to do? he said. I want you, said Arthur, to tell me that I have been dreaming for the last five years. Ford shrugged again and obliged. You've been dreaming for the last five years, he said. Arthur got to his feet. "'It's all right, officer,' he said. "'I've been dreaming for the last five years. "'Ask him,' he added, pointing at Ford. "'He was in it!' "'Having said this, he sauntered off towards the edge of the pitch, "'brushing down his dressing gown. "'He then noticed his dressing gown and stopped. "'He stared at it. "'He flung himself at the policeman. "'So where did I get these clothes from?' he howled. 
He collapsed and lay twitching on the grass. Ford shook his head. He's had a bad two billion years, two million years, he said to the policeman. And together they heaved Arthur onto the sofa and carried him off the pitch and were only briefly hampered by the sudden disappearance of the sofa on the way. Reactions to all this from the crowd were many and various. Most of them couldn't cope with watching it and listened to it on the radio instead. Well, this is an interesting incident, Brian, said one radio commentator to another. I don't think there's been any other mysterious materialisations on the pitch since... Oh, since... Well, I, I don't think there have been any, have there, that I recall? Edgebuston, 1932. Ah, ah, now that... What happened then? Well, Peter, I think it was canter-facing Wilcox coming up to bowl from the pavilion end when a spectator suddenly ran straight across the pitch. There was a pause whilst the first commentator considered this. Yes, he said, yes. There's, there's nothing actually very mysterious about that now, is there? He didn't actually materialise, did he? He just ran on. No, no, that's true. Uh, but he did claim to have seen something materialise on the pitch. Oh, did he? Yes. An alligator, I think, of some description. Ah, and had anyone else noticed it? Uh, apparently not. Uh, no one was able to get a very detailed description from him, so only the most perfunctory search was made. Uh, and what happened to the man? Well, I think someone offered to take him off and give him some lunch, but he explained that he'd already had a rather good one, so the matter was dropped, and Warwickshire went on to win by three wickets. So, not very like this current instance. For those of you who have just tuned in, you may be interested to know uh, that two men, two, two rather scruffily attired men, and indeed a sofa, a Chesterfield, I think, uh, yes, a Chesterfield, have just materialised here in the middle of Lord's Cricket Ground. Um, but I don't think they meant any harm, so they've been very good-natured about it, and... Uh, sorry, I can interrupt you for a moment, if I can, Peter, uh, to say that the sofa has just vanished. So it has. Well, well, that's one mystery less. Still, it's definitely one for the record books, I think, particularly occurring at this dramatic moment in play, England now needing only 24 runs to win the series. The men are leaving the pitch in the company of a police officer, and I think everyone's settling down now, and, and play is, is about to resume. Now, sir, said the policeman, after they'd made a passage through the curious crowd and laid Arthur's peacefully inert body on a blanket, Perhaps you care to tell me who you are, where you come from, and what that little scene was all about. Ford looked at the ground for a moment as if steadying himself for something. Then he straightened up and aimed a look at the policeman, which hit him with the full force of every inch of the six light-years distance between Earth and Ford's home near Beetlejuice. All right said Ford, very quietly. I'll tell you. Yes, well, that won't be necessary, said the policeman hurriedly. Just don't let whatever happens happen again. The policeman turned around and wandered off in search of anyone who wasn't from Beetlejuice. Fortunately, the ground was full of them. Arthur's consciousness approached his body from as great a distance and uh, extremely reluctantly. It had had some bad times in there. Slowly, nervously, it entered his body and settled down into its accustomed position. Arthur sat up. "'Where am I?' he said. "'Lord's Cricket Ground,' said Ford. "'Fine,' said Arthur, and his consciousness stepped out again for a quick breather. His body flopped back onto the grass." Ten minutes later, hunched over a cup of tea in the refreshment tent, the colour started to come back into his haggard face. "'How are you feeling?' said Ford. "'I'm home,' said Arthur, hoarsely. He closed his eyes and greedily inhaled the steam from his tea, as if it was, well, as far as Arthur was concerned, as if it was tea.' which it was. 
"'I'm home,' he repeated. "'Home?' "'It's England. It's today. The nightmare is over.' He opened his eyes again and smiled serenely. "'I'm... I'm where I belong,' he said in an emotional whisper. "'There are two things I feel I should tell you.' said Ford, tossing a copy of The Guardian over the table at him. "'I'm home,' said Arthur. "'Yes,' said Ford. "'One is,' he said, pointing at the date at the top of the paper, "'that the earth will be demolished in two days' time.' "'I'm home,' said Arthur. "'Tea,' he said. "'Cricket!' he added with pleasure. "'Mown grass, wooden benches, white linen jackets, Beer cans. Slowly, he began to focus on the newspaper. He cocked his head on one side with a slight frown. I, I've seen that one before, he said. His eyes wandered slowly up to the date, which Ford was idly tapping at. His face froze for a second or two, and then began to do that terribly slow, crashing trick which Arctic ice flows do so spectacularly in the spring. The other thing, said Ford, is that you appear to have a bone in your beard. He tossed back his tea. Outside the refreshment tent, the sun was shining on a happy crowd. It shone on white hats and red faces. It shone on ice lollies and melted them. It shone on the tears of small children whose ice lollies has just melted and fallen off the stick. It shone on the trees. It flashed off whirling cricket bats. It gleamed off the utterly extraordinary object which was parked behind the sight screens which nobody appeared to have noticed. It beamed on Ford and Arthur as they emerged blinking from the refreshment tent and surveyed the scene around them. Arthur was shaking. Perhaps, he said, I, I, I should... No, said Ford sharply. What? said Arthur. Don't try and phone yourself up at home. How did you know... Ford shrugged. But, but why not? said Arthur. People who talk to themselves on the phone, said Ford, never learn anything to their advantage. But look, said Ford. He picked up an imaginary telephone and dialed an imaginary dial. Hello, he said into the imaginary mouthpiece. Is that Arthur Dent? Ah, Hello, yes, this is Arthur Dent speaking. No, don't hang up. He looked at the imaginary phone in disappointment. He hung up, he said, shrugged, and put the imaginary phone neatly back on its imaginary hook. This is not my first temporal anomaly, he added. A glummer look replaced the already glum look on Arthur Dent's face. So, we're not home and dry yet? We could not even be said, replied Ford, to be home and even vigorously toweling ourselves off. The game continued. The bowler approached the wicket at a lope, a trot, and then a run. He suddenly exploded in a flurry of arms and legs, out of which flew a ball. The batsman swung and thwacked it behind him over the sight screens. Ford's eyes followed the trajectory of the ball and jagged momentarily. He stiffened. He looked right along the flight path of the ball again, and his eyes twitched again. "'This isn't my towel,' said Arthur, who was rummaging in his rabbit-skin bag. "'Shh!' said Ford. He screwed his eyes up in concentration. "'I, I had a Golgofrinchin jogging towel.' continued Arthur. It was blue, with yellow stars on it. This isn't it. Shh, said Ford again. He covered one eye and looked, peered with the other. This one's pink, said Arthur. 
It isn't yours, is it? I would like you to shut up about your towel, said Ford. It isn't my towel, insisted Arthur. That is the point that I'm trying to, and the, the time at which I would like you to shut up about it, continued Ford in a low growl, is now. All right, said Arthur, starting to stuff it back into the primitively stitched rabbit skin bag. I realise that it is probably not important in the cosmic scale of things. It's just odd, that's all. A pink towel suddenly instead of a blue one with yellow stars. Ford was beginning to behave rather strangely, or rather not actually beginning to behave strangely, but beginning to behave in a way which was strangely different from the other strange ways in which he more regularly behaved. What he was doing was this. Regardless of the bemused stares it was provoking from his fellow members of the crowd gathered around the pitch, he was waving his hands in sharp movements across his face, ducking down behind some people, leaping up behind others, then standing still and blinking a lot. After a moment or two of this, he started to stalk forward slowly and stealthily, wearing a puzzled frown of concentration like a leopard that is not sure whether it's just seen a half-empty tin of cat food half a mile away across a hot and dusty plain. "'This isn't my bag either,' said Arthur suddenly. Ford's spell of concentration was broken. He turned angrily on Arthur. "'I wasn't talking about my towel!' said Arthur. We've established that it isn't mine. It's just that the bag into which I was putting my towel, which is not mine, is also not mine, though it is extraordinarily similar. Now, personally, I think that that is extremely odd, especially as the bag was the one I made myself on prehistoric earth. Also, these are not my stones he added, pulling a few flat grey stones out of the bag. I was making a collection of interesting stones, and these are clearly very dull ones. A roar of excitement thrilled through the crowd and obliterated whatever it was that Ford said in reply to this piece of information. The cricket ball, which had exited his this, this react, sorry, which had excited this reaction, fell out of the sky and dropped neatly into Arthur's mysterious rabbit skin bag. Now, I would say that that was also a very curious event, said Arthur, rapidly closing the bag and pretending to look for it on the ground. I don't think it's here he said to the small boys, who immediately clustered around him to join in the search. It probably rolled off somewhere. Oh, over there, I suspect. He pointed vaguely in the direction in which he wished they would all push off. One of the boys looked at him quizzically. You all right? said the boy. No, said Arthur. Then what? Why you got a bone in your beard? said the boy. I'm training it to like being wherever it's put. Arthur prided himself on saying this. It was, he thought, exactly the sort of thing which would entertain and stimulate young minds. Ah, said the small boy, putting his head on one side and thinking about it. What's your name? Dent, said Arthur. Arthur Dent. You're a jerk, Dent, said the boy. A complete arsehole. The boy looked past him at something else, to show that he wasn't in any particular hurry to run away, and then wandered off, scratching his nose. Suddenly, Arthur remembered that the earth was going to be demolished again in two days' time, and just this once didn't feel too bad about it. Play resumed with a new ball. The sun continued to shine, and Ford continued to jump up and down, shaking his head and blinking. "'Something's on your mind, isn't it?' said Arthur. "'I think,' said Ford, in a tone of voice which Arthur by now recognised as one which presaged something utterly unintelligible, "'I think that there's an SEP over there.' He pointed. 
Curiously enough, the direction he pointed in was not the one in which he was looking. Arthur looked in the one direction, which was towards the sight screens, and in the other, which was at the field of play. He nodded and shrugged. He shrugged again. A what? he said. An SEP. An S-E-P. And what's that? Somebody else's problem, said Ford. Ah, good, said Arthur, and relaxed. He had no idea what that was all about, but at best it seemed to be over. It wasn't. Over there, said Ford, again pointing at the sight screens and looking at the pitch. Where? said Arthur. There, said Ford. I see, said Arthur, who didn't. You do? said Ford. What? said Arthur. Can you see, said Ford patiently, the SEP? I thought you said that that was somebody else's problem. That's right. Arthur nodded slowly, carefully, and with an air of immense cupidity. And I want to know, said Ford, if you can see it. You do? Yes. What, said Arthur, does it look like? Well, how should I know, you fool, shouted Ford. If you can see it, you tell me. Arthur experienced that dull, throbbing sensation just behind the temples, which was a hallmark of so many of his conversations with Ford. His brain lurked like a frightened puppy in its kennel. Ford took him by the arm. An SEP, he said, is something that we can't see or don't see or our brain doesn't let us see because we think that it's somebody else's problem. That's what SEP means. Somebody else's problem. The brain just edits it out. It's like a, a blind spot. If you look at it directly, you won't see it unless you know precisely what it is. Your only hope is to catch it by surprise out of the corner of your eye. Ah, said Arthur. Then that's why... Yes, said Ford, who knew what Arthur was going to say. You've been jumping up and, yes, down and blinking, yes, and I think you've got the message. I can see it, said Arthur. It's a spaceship. For a moment, Arthur was stunned by the reaction this revelation provoked. A roar erupted from the crowd, and from every direction people were running, shouting, yelling and tumbling over each other in a tumult of confusion. He stumbled back in astonishment and glanced fearfully around. Then he glanced around again in even greater astonishment. "'Exciting, isn't it?' said an apparition. The apparition wobbled in front of Arthur's eyes though the truth of the matter is probably that Arthur's eyes were wobbling in front of the apparition. His mouth wobbled as well. His mouth said. I think your team have just won, said the apparition. Repeated Arthur, and punctuated each wobble with a prod at Ford Prefect's back. Ford was staring at the tumult in trepidation. "'You're English, aren't you?' said the apparition. Uh, 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 "'Yes,' said Arthur. "'Well, your team, as I say, have just won. The match. It, it means they retain the ashes. You must be very pleased. I must say I'm rather fond of cricket, though I wouldn't like anyone outside this planet to hear me say that. Oh, dear, no!' The apparition gave what looked as if might have been a mischievous grin, but it was hard to tell, because the sun was directly behind him, creating a blinding halo around his head, and illuminating his silver hair and beard in a way that was awesome, dramatic, and hard to reconcile with mischievous grins. Still, he said, it'll all be over in a couple of days, won't it? Though, as I said to you when we last met, I was very sorry about that. Still, 
Whatever will have been, will have been. Arthur tried to speak, but gave up the unequal struggle. He prodded Ford again. I thought something terrible had happened, said Ford. But it's just the end of the game. We ought to get out. Oh, hello, Slarty Bartfast. What are you doing here? Oh, pottering, pottering, said the old man gravely. That your ship? He said. Can you give us a lift anywhere? Patience, patience, the old man admonished. OK, said Ford. It's just that this planet's going to be demolished pretty soon. I know that, said Slarty Bartfast. And, well, I, I just wanted to make that point, said Ford. The point is taken. And if you feel that you really want to hang around a cricket pitch at this point, I do, then it's your ship. It is. I suppose, Ford turned away sharply at this point. Hello, Slarty Bartfast, said Arthur at last. Hello, Earthman, said Slarty Bartfast. After all, said Ford, we can only die once. The old man ignored this and stared keenly onto the pitch, with eyes which seemed alive with expressions that had no apparent bearing on what was happening out there. What was happening was that the crowd was gathering itself into a wide circle around the centre of the pitch. What Slarty Bartfast saw in it, he alone knew. Ford was humming something. It was just one note repeated at intervals. He was hoping that someone would ask him what he was humming. But nobody did. If anybody had asked him, he would have said it was the, he was humming the first line of a Noel Coward song called Mad About the Boy, over and over again. It would then have been pointed out to him that he was only singing one note, to which he would have replied that for reasons that we, which he hoped would be apparent, he was admitting the about-the-boy bit. He was annoyed that nobody asked. "'It's just,' he burst out at last, "'that if we don't go soon, we might get caught in the middle of it all again, and there's nothing that depresses me more than seeing a planet being destroyed, except possibly still being on it when it happens. Or,' he added in an undertone, "'hanging around at cricket matches.' Patience, said Slarty Bartfast again. Great things are afoot. That's what you said last time we met, said Arthur. They were, said Slarty Bartfast. Well, yes, that's true, admitted Arthur. All, however, that seemed to be afoot currently was a ceremony of some kind. It was being specially staged for the benefit of TV rather than the spectators, and all they could gather about it from where they were standing was that what they was what they heard from a nearby radio. Ford was aggressively uninterested. He fretted as he heard it explained that the ashes were about to be presented to the captain of the English team out there on the pitch, fumed when told that this was because they'd now won them for the nth time, positively barked with annoyance at the information that the ashes were the remains of a cricket stump, and when, further to this, he was asked, it, he was asked to contend with the fact that the cricket stump in question had been burnt in Melbourne, Australia in 1882 to signify the death of English cricket, he rounded on Slarty Bartfast, took a deep breath, but didn't have a chance to say anything because the old man wasn't there. He was marching out onto the pitch with terrible purpose in his gait. His hair, beard and robes swept behind him, looking very much as Moses would have looked if Sinai had been a well-cut lawn instead of, as it is more usually represented, a fiery smoking mountain. He said to meet him at his ship, said Arthur. What, in the name of Zarking Fardwarks, is the old fool doing? exploded Ford. Meeting us at his ship in two minutes, said Arthur with a shrug, which indicated total abdication of thought. They started off towards it. 
strange sounds reached their ears. They tried not to listen, but could not help noticing that Slarty Bartfast was querulously demanding that he be given the silver urn containing the ashes. As they were, he said, vitally important for the past, present, and safety of the galaxy. And that was causing wild hilarity. They resolved to ignore it. What happened next they could not ignore. With a noise like a hundred thousand people saying, Whoop! A white, steely, sorry, a steely white spaceship suddenly seemed to create itself out of nothing in the air, directly above the cricket pitch, and hung there with infinite menace and a slight hum. Then, for a while, it did nothing, as if it expected everybody to go about their normal business and not mind it just hanging there. Then it did something quite extraordinary, or rather it opened up and let something quite extraordinary come out of it. Eleven quite extraordinary things. They were robots, white robots. What was most extraordinary about them was that they seemed to appear to have come dressed for the occasion. Not only were they white, but they carried what appeared to be cricket bats. Not only that, but they also carried what appeared to be cricket balls. And not only that, but they wore white ribbing pads around the lower parts of their legs. These last were extraordinary because they appeared to contain jets, which allowed these curiously civilised robots to fly down from their hovering spaceship and start to kill people, which is what they did. Hello, said Arthur. Some, something seems to be happening. Get to the ship, said Ford. I don't want to know. Just, just get to the ship. He started to run. I don't want to know. I don't want to see. I don't want to hear. He yelled as he ran. This is not my planet. I didn't choose to be here, and I don't want to get in. Just get me out of here and get me to a party. A party with people I can relate to. Smoke and flame billowed from the pitch. Well, the supernatural brigade certainly seems to be out in force here today, burbled a radio happily to itself. "'Well, I need,' shouted Ford, by way of clarifying his previous remarks, "'is a strong drink and a peer group.' He continued to run, pausing only for a moment to grab Arthur's arm and drag him along with him. Arthur had adopted his normal crisis role, which was to stand with his mouth hanging open and let it all wash over him. "'They're playing cricket.' muttered Arthur, stumbling along after Ford. I, I swear that they're playing cricket. I do not know why they are doing this, but that is what they're doing. They're not just killing people. They're sending them up, he shouted. Ford, they're sending us up. It would have been hard to, to disbelieve this without knowing a great deal more galactic history than Arthur had so far managed to pick up in his travels. The ghostly but violent shapes that could be seen moving within the thick pool of smoke seemed to be performing a bizarre series of parodies of batting strokes, the difference being that every ball they struck with their bats exploded wherever it landed. The very first of these had dispelled Arthur's initial reaction that the whole thing might just be a publicity stunt by Australian mar margarine manufacturers. And then, as suddenly as it had all started, it was over. The eleven white robots ascended through the seething cloud in a tight formation, and with a few last flashes of flame entered the bowels of their hovering white ship, which, with the noise of a hundred thousand people suddenly saying, Foop! promptly vanished into the thin air out of which it had whopped. For a moment there was a terrible, stunned silence, and then out of the drifting smoke emerged the pale figure of Slarty Bartfast, 
looking even more like Moses, because in spite of the continued absence of the mountain, he was at least now striding across a fiery and smoking well-mown lawn. He stared wildly about him until he saw the hurrying figures of Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect forcing their way through a frightened crowd which was for the moment busy stampeding in the opposite direction. The crowd was clearly thinking to itself about what an unusual day this was turning out to be and not really knowing which way, if any, to turn. Slarty Bartfast was gesticulating urgently at Ford and Arthur and shouting at them as the three of them gradually converged on his ship, still parked behind the sight-screens and still apparently unnoticed by the crowd stampeding past it, who presumably had enough of their own problems to cope with at that particular time. "'They've gobble, frabble, wobble!' slouted Slarty Bartfast in his thin, tremulous voice. "'What did he say?' panted Ford as he elbowed his way onwards. Arthur shook his head. "'They've something or other,' he said. "'They've garble-wobble-farble!' shouted Flarty Bartfast again. Ford and Arthur shook their heads at each other. "'It sounds urgent,' said Arthur. He stopped and shouted. "'What?' "'They've garble-wobble-fashes!' cried Slarty Bartfast, still waving at them. "'He says,' said Arthur, "'that they've taken the ashes. "'That is what I think he says.' "'They ran on. "'The... Huh? said Ford. "'Ashes,' said Arthur tersely. "'The burnt remains of a cricket stump. "'It's a trophy. "'That,' he was panting, "'is apparently why they have come and taken what... The, th "'That's the thing that they've taken.' He shook his head very slightly, as if he was trying to get his brain to settle down lower in his skull. "'That's a strange thing to want to tell us,' snapped Ford. "'Strange thing to take!' "'Strange ship!' They had arrived at it. The second strangest thing about the ship was watching the somebody else's problem field at work. They could now clearly see the ship for what it was, simply because they knew it was there. It was quite apparent, however, that nobody else could. This wasn't because it was actually invisible or anything hyper-impossible like that. The technology involved in making anything invisible is so infinitely complex that 999,999,999,999 times out of a billion, it is much simpler and more effective just to take the thing away and do without it. The ultra-famous scientomagician Ephrafax of Wug once belt bent bleh. we'll try that again, shall we, kids? The ultra famous Scientomagician magician Ephrafax of Wug once bet his life that given a year he could render the great mega mountain Magramal entirely invisible. Having spent most of the year jiggling around with immense luxo valves and refracto nullifiers and spectrum bypassomatics, he realized with nine hours to go that he wasn't going to make it. So, he and his friends, and his friends' friends, and his friends' friends' friends, and his friends' 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 friends, and some rather less good friends of theirs, who happened to own a major stellar trucking company, put in what is now widely recognised as being the hardest night's work in history. And sure enough, on the following day, Magramal was no longer visible. Ephrafax lost his bet, and therefore his life, simply because some pedantic adjudicating official noticed a that when walking around the area that Magramal ought to be in, he didn't trip over or break his nose on anything, and b a suspicious-looking extra moon in the sky. The somebody else's problem field is much simpler and more effective, and what is more, can be run for over a hundred years on a single torch battery. This is because it relies on people's natural predisposition not to see anything that they don't want to, weren't expecting, 
or can't explain. If Ephrafax had painted the mountain pink and erected a cheap and simple somebody else's problem field on it, then people would have walked past the mountain, round it, or even over it, and simply never have noticed that the thing was there. And this is precisely what was happening with Slarty Bartfast's ship. It wasn't pink, but if it had been, that would have been the least of its visual problems, and people were simply ignoring it like anything. The most extraordinary thing about it was that it looked only partly like a spaceship, with guidance fins, rocket engines, escape hatches and so on, and a great deal more like a small upended Italian bistro. Ford and Arthur gazed up at it with wonderment and deeply offended sensibilities. "'Yes, I know,' said Slarty Bartfast, hurrying up to them at that point, breathless and agitated. "'But there is a reason. Come, we must go. The ancient nightmare has come again. Doom confronts us all. We must leave at once.' "'I fancy somewhere sunny,' said Ford. Ford and Arthur followed Slarty Bartfast into the ship, and were so perplexed by what they saw inside it that they were totally unaware of what happened next outside. A spaceship, yet another one, but this one, sleek and silver, descended from the sky onto the pitch, without a fuss, its long legs unlocking in a smooth ballet of technology. It landed gently. It extended a short ramp. A tall, grey-green figure marched briskly out and approached the small knot of people who were gathered in the centre of the pitch, tending to the casualties of the recent bizarre massacre. It moved people aside with quiet, understated authority, and came at last to a man lying in a desperate pool of blood, clearly now beyond the reach of any earthly medicine breathing, coughing his last. The figure knelt down quietly beside him. "'Arthur Philip Deodat?' asked the figure. The man, with horrified confusion in his eyes, nodded feebly. "'You're a no-good dumbo-nothing,' said the creature. "'I thought you should know that before you went.' Morty. One second. Important Facts from Galactic History, number two. Reproduced from the Sidereal Daily Mentioners book of Popular Galactic History. Since this galaxy began, vast civilizations have risen and fallen, risen and fallen, risen and fallen, so often that it's quite tempting to think that life in the galaxy must be a. something akin to seasick, space-sick, time-sick, history-sick, or some such thing, and b. stupid. It seemed to Arthur as if the whole sky suddenly stood aside and let them through. It seemed to him that the atoms of his brain and the atoms of the cosmos were streaming through each other. It seemed to him that he was blown on the wind of the universe, and that the wind was him. It seemed to him that he was one of the thoughts of the universe, and that the universe was a thought of his. It seemed to the people at Lord's Cricket Ground that another North London restaurant had just come and gone as they so often do, and that this was somebody else's problem. What happened? whispered Arthur in considerable awe. We took off, said Slarty Bartfast. Arthur lay in startled stillness on the acceleration couch. He wasn't certain whether he had just got space sickness or religion. Nice mover said Ford, in an unsuccessful attempt to disguise the degree to which he had been impressed by what Slarty Bartfast's ship had just done. Shame about the decor. For a moment or two, the old man 
didn't reply. He was staring at the instruments with the air of one who is trying to convert Fahrenheit to centigrade in his head whilst his house is burning down. Then his brow cleared and he stared for a moment at the wide panoramic screen in front of him which displayed a bewildering complexity of stars streaming like silver threads around them. His lips moved as if he was trying to spell something. Suddenly his eyes darted in alarm back to his instruments, but then his expression merely subsided into a steady frown. He looked back up at the screen. He felt his own pulse. His frown deepened for a moment, and then he relaxed. It's a, it's a mistake to try and understand machines, he said. They only worry me. Uh, what did you say? Decor, said Ford. Pity about it. Deep in the fundamental heart of mind and universe, said Slotty Bartfast, there is a reason. Ford glanced sharply around. He clearly thought that this was taking a very optimistic view of things. The interior of the flight deck was dark green, dark red, dark brown, cramped and moodily lit. Inexplicably, the resemblance to a small Italian bistro had failed to end at the hatchway. Small pools of light picked out pot plants, glazed tiles, and all sorts of little unidentifiable brass things. Raffia-wrapped bottles lurked hideously in the shadows. The instruments which had occupied Slarty Bartfast's attention seemed to be mounted in the bottom of bottles which were set into concrete. Ford reached out and touched it. Fake concrete. Plastic. Fake bottles set in fake concrete. The fundamental heart of mind and universe can take a running jump, he thought to himself. This is rubbish. On the other hand, it could not be denied that the way the ship had moved had made the heart of gold seem like an electric pram. He swung himself off the couch, brushed himself down, and looked at Arthur. He was singing quietly to himself. He looked at the screen and recognised nothing. He looked at Slarty Bartfast. "'How far did we just travel?' he said. "'About,' said Slarty Bartfast, mm, "'about two-thirds of the way across the galactic disk, I would say, roughly. "'Yes, roughly two-thirds, I think.' "'It's a strange thing,' said Arthur quietly, "'that the further and faster one travels across the universe, "'the more one's position in it seems to be largely immaterial, "'and one is filled with a profound or rather emptied of a... Yes, 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 very strange, said Ford. Where are we going? We are going, said Slotty Bartfast, to confront an ancient nightmare of the universe. Ah, oh, and uh, where are you going to drop us off? I will need your help. Tough. Look, there's somewhere you can take us where we can have fun. I'm trying to think of it. But we can get drunk and maybe listen to some extremely evil music. Hold on, I'll look it up. He dug out his copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and zipped through those parts of the index primarily, primarily concerned with sex and drugs and rock and roll. A curse has arisen from the mists of time, said Slarty Bartfast. Yes, 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 I, I expect so, said Ford. Hey, he said, lighting accidentally on one particular reference entry. Eccentrica Golumbitz. Did you ever meet her? The triple-breasted whore of Eroticon 6? Some people say her erogenous zones start some four miles away from her actual body. Me, I disagree. I'd say five. A curse, said Slarty Bartfast, which will engulf the galaxy in fire and destruction and possibly bring the universe to a premature doom. I mean it, he added. 
Sounds like a bad time, said Ford. With luck, I'll be drunk enough not to notice. Here, he said, stabbing his finger at the screen of the guide, would be a really wicked place to go, and I think we should. What do you say, Arthur? Stop mumbling mantras and pay attention. There's important stuff you're missing here. Arthur pushed himself up from his couch and shook his head. Where are we going? he said. To confront an ancient night... Can it? said Ford. Arthur, we are going out into the galaxy to have some fun. Is that an idea you can cope with? What's Slarty Bartfast looking so anxious about? said Arthur. Nothing, said Ford. Doom, said Slarty Bartfast. Come, he added with sudden authority. There is much I must show and tell you. He walked towards a green wrought iron, wrought iron spiral staircase set incomprehensibly in the middle of the flight deck and started to ascend. Arthur, with a frown, followed. Ford slung the guide sullenly back into his satchel. My doctor, he said, says that I have a malformed public duty gland and a natural deficiency in moral fibre, he muttered to himself, and that I am therefore excused from saving universes. Nevertheless, he stomped up the stairs behind them. What they found upstairs was just stupid, or so it seemed, and Ford shook his head buried his face in his hands and slumped against a pot plant, crushing it against the wall. The uh, central computational area, said Slarty Bartfast, unperturbed. This is where every calculation affecting the ship in any way is performed. Yes, I know what it looks like, but it is in fact a complex four-dimensional topographical map of a series of highly complex mathematical functions. It looks like a joke, said Arthur. I know what it looks like, said Slarty Bartfast, and went into it. As he did so, Arthur had a sudden vague flash of what it might mean, but he refused to believe it. The universe could not possibly work like that, he thought. Cannot possibly. That, he thought to himself, would be as absurd as... as absurd as... He terminated that line of thinking. Most of the really absurd things he could think of had already happened. And this was one of them. It was a large glass cage, or box, in fact, a room. In it was a table, a long one. Around it were gathered about a dozen chairs of the Bentwood style. On it was a tablecloth a grubby red and white check tablecloth, scarred with the occasional cigarette burn, each, presumably, at a precisely calculated mathematical position. And on the tablecloth sat some dozen half-eaten Italian meals, hedged about with half-eaten breadsticks and half-drunk glasses of wine, and toyed with listlessly by robots. It was all completely artificial, the robot customers were attended by a robot waiter, a robot wine waiter, and a robot maitre d'. The furniture was artificial, the tablecloth artificial, and each particular piece of food was clearly capable of exhibiting all the mechanical characteristics of, say, uh, a pollo suppresso without actually being one. And all participated in a, in a little dance together a complex routine involving the manipulation of menus, of bill pads, of wallets, checkbooks, credit cards, watches, pencils and paper napkins, which seemed to be hovering constantly on the edge of violence, but never actually getting anywhere. Slarty Bartfast hurried in, and then appeared to pass the time of day quite idly with the maitre d', whilst one of the customer robots, an, an autorory, slid under the table, mentioning what he intended to do to some guy over some girl. 
Slarty Bartfast, took over the seat which had been thus vacated, and passed a shrewd eye over the menu. The tempo of the routine around the table seemed somehow imperceptibly to quicken. Arguments broke out. People attempted to prove things on napkins. They waved fiercely at each other and attempted to examine each other's pieces of chicken. The waiter's hand began to move on the bill-pad more quickly than a human hand could manage, and then more quickly than a human eye could follow. The pace accelerated. Soon an extraordinary and insistent politeness overwhelmed the group, and seconds later it seemed that a moment of consensus was suddenly achieved. A new vibration thrilled through the ship. Slarty Bartfast emerged from the glass room. Bistromathics, he said, the most powerful computational force known to parascience. Come to the room of informational illusions. He swept past and carried them, bewildered in his wake. The bistromathic drive is a wonderful new method of crossing vast interstellar distances without all that dangerous mucking about with improbability factors. Bistromathics itself is simply a revolutionary new way of understanding the behaviour of numbers. Just as Einstein observed that time was not an absolute, but depended on the observer's movement in space, and that space was not an absolute, but depended on the observer's movement in time, so it is now realised that numbers are not absolute, but depend on the observer's movement in restaurants. The first absolute number is the number of people for whom the table is reserved. This will vary during the course of the first three telephone calls to the restaurant and then bear no apparent relation to the number of people who actually turn up or to the number of people who sub subsequently join them after the show-slash-match-slash-party-slash-gig or to the number of people who leave when they, say, when they see who else has turned up. The second non-absolute number is the given time of arrival, which is now known to be one of those most bizarre of concepts. A reciprocerous exclusion, a number whose existence can only be defined as being anything other than itself. In other words, the given time of arrival is the one moment of time at which it is impossible that any member of the party will actually arrive. God, it's, it's a horrible word. I'm just going to try it again. Okay. Reciprivous seclusions now play a vital part in many branches of maths, including statistics and accountancy, and also form the basic equations used to engineer the somebody else's problem field. The third and most mysterious piece of non-absoluteness -abs of all lies in the relationship between the number of items on the bill, the cost of each item, the number of people at the table, and what they are each prepared to pay for. The number of people who've actually bought any money is only a sub-phenomenon in this field. The baffling discrepancies which used, to concern, which used to occur at this point remained uninvestigated for centuries, simply because no one took them seriously. They were at the time put down to such things as politeness, rudeness, meanness, flashness, tiredness, emotionality, or the lateness of the hour, and completely forgotten about on the following morning. They were never tested under laboratory conditions, of course, because they never occurred in laboratories, not in reputable laboratories, at least. And so it was, with only the advent of pocket computers, that the startling truth finally became apparent. And it was this. Numbers written on restaurant bills, within the confines of restaurants, do not follow the same mathematical laws as numbers written on any other pieces of paper in any other parts of the universe. This 
single fact took the scientific world by storm. It completely revolutionised it. So many mathematical conferences got held in such good restaurants that many of the finest minds of a generation died of obesity and heart failure, and the science of maths was put back years. Slowly, however, the implications of the idea began to be understood. To begin with, it had been too stark, too crazy, too much what the man in the street would have said. Oh, yeah, I could have told you that. Then some phrases like interactive subject subjectivity frameworks were invented, and everybody was able to relax and get on with it. The small groups of monks who'd taken up to taking up hanging around the major research institutes singing strange chants to the effect that the universe was only a figment of its own imagination were eventually given a street theatre grant and went away. In space travel, you see, said Slarty Bartfast, as he fiddled with some instruments in the room of informational illusions, in space travel, he stopped and looked around him. The room of informational illusions was a welcome relief after the visual monstrosities of the central computational area. There was nothing in it, no information, no illusions, just themselves, white walls and a few small instruments, which looked as if they were meant to plug into something which Slarty Bartfast couldn't for the moment find. Yes? urged Arthur. He'd picked up Slarty Bartfast's sense of urgency, but didn't really quite know what to do with it. Uh, yes, what? said the old man. You were saying? Slarty Bartfast looked at him sharply. Oh, the numbers! he said, are awful. He resumed his search. Arthur nodded wisely to himself. After a while he realised that this wasn't getting him anywhere, and decided that he would say, what? after all. In space travel, repeated Slarty Bartfast, all the numbers are awful. Arthur nodded again, and looked around to Ford for help, but Ford was practising being sullen and getting really quite good at it. "'I was only,' sighed Slarty Bartfast, "'trying to save you the trouble of asking me why all the ship's computations were being done on a waiter's bill-pad.' Arthur frowned. "'Why?' He said, were all the ship's computations being done on a wait? He stopped. Slarty Bartfast said, because in space travel all the numbers are awful. He could tell that he wasn't getting his point across. Listen, he said, on a waiter's bill pad numbers dance. You, you must have encountered the phenomenon. Well, on a waiter's bill-pad, said Slarty Barfast, reality and unreality collide on such a fundamental level that each becomes the other and anything is possible within certain parameters. What parameters? It's impossible to say, said Slarty Barfast. That's one of them. Strange, but true. At least I, I think it's strange he added, and I am assured it's true. At that moment he located the slot in the wall for which he had been searching, and clicked the instrument he was holding into it. Do not be alarmed, he said, and then suddenly darted an alarmed look at it himself, and lunged back. It's— They didn't hear what he said, because at that moment the ship winked out of existence around them, and a star battleship, the size of a small Midlands industrial city, plunged out of the sundered night towards them, star lasers ablaze. A nightmare storm of blistering light seared through the blackness, and smacked a fair bit off the planet directly behind them. They gaped, pop-eyed, and were unable to scream. That, I think, is where we'll leave it for this evening. Seems like a good spot, does it not, ladles and jelly spoons? I think so.
Thank you very much, everybody, for coming along and tuning in, listening. It means a huge amount um, to to hear you, uh, see you, to see you here. Um, it's nice to see that we've got people literally joining us from all over the world. Uh, if you need to catch up, I've done some publicity. So if uh, if you're only just tuning in for the first time, you can see the other eleven parts first. Or you can find the podcasts on uh, iTunes and Spotify and other places as well, or other areas where you get your podcasts. So do feel free to download and listen to those whenever you would like to. Uh, We will do this again next week, uh, technology and health uh, notwithstanding. Um, But as always, thank you so much for your company this evening. Uh, I enjoy doing this tremendously and it means a lot to me to know that there are people out there listening. So thank you very much for tuning in um, and uh, see you in a week's time. Take care of yourself, look after yourselves, be good to each other uh, and be good to yourselves. Thanks a lot, everybody. Um, See you next week. Bye-bye.